Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, I Have Much More to Say to You, Lessons from a Love Story. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, May the 30th, 2010. I have much more to say to you. Jesus told his disciples in John 16, verse 12. After three tumultuous years with Jesus, I imagine the disciples were exasperated by these words. You mean there's more? But beyond exasperation, I'm sure they also felt a sense of expectation and even longing. There's more to come. There's more to my story. I'm not stuck in past failures or present fears. What more does the resurrected Lord have to say to me? I have much more to say to you. How so? When and where? What is the much more promised by Jesus to his followers? According to the church's liturgical calendar, the weeks after Pentecost are called ordinary time. Lenten disciplines are long gone, Easter festivities have faded from memory, and now even Pentecost is past. With no fasts or feast days, we're now in ordinary time. But it's precisely in this ordinary time that we experience the much more promised by Jesus. The more that he promised is sometimes in the less of our lives. The Latina theologian Maria Isaiah Diaz describes this intersection of the sacred and the mundane, the unexpected and the exceptional, as the daily thing or sacred ordinariness. When you don't get what you want or you expect, God gives you the unexpected, something more. In Quaker spirituality, the ordinary takes center stage. With no creed, no liturgy, no sacred place defined by special architecture, no observance of holy days, no sacraments, and no professional clergy. Quaker simplicity revolves around silence, both in personal spirituality and in corporate worship. In the inner solitude of the human heart, we meet the Lord of all time and space. And then in the Celtic tradition, What they call thin places are where the sacred and the profane intersect, times when the spiritual permeates the material. Thin spaces are the ordinary places and spaces of life where we sense God's extraordinary grace. Esther DeWall, a historian of Celtic spirituality, says that one of the gifts of Celtic life was that it was a practice in which ordinary people in their daily lives took the tasks that laid a hand, but treated them sacramentally as pointing to a greater reality which lay beyond them. It's an approach to life which we've been in danger of losing, this sense of allowing the extraordinary to break in on the ordinary.
Sacred ordinariness require, requires a counterintuitive and countercultural way of seeing the world. The psalmist for this week reminds us that the God whose majesty extends throughout the cosmos is the same God who silences the mighty with songs of babes. Psalm 8, verse 2. Similarly, in Romans chapter 5, 1 to 5, Paul urges his Roman readers to face suffering with joy instead of despair, for nothing can separate them from the love that God has lavished on them. They have every reason to believe that their hope will not disappoint them, contrary to external appearances. Of course, there's a big difference between loving what God gives and longing for our own fantasies. The latter is a setup for deep disappointment, whereas the former is a path to Christian maturity. Mature faith does not anticipate a predetermined outcome. The British novelist and poet Mary Elizabeth Coleridge captures this true faith in her poem after Augustine. It's short, just four lines. Sunshine, let it be, or frost, storm or calm, as thou shalt choose. Though thine every gift were lost, thee thyself we could not lose. And so the more that God gives us, says Coleridge, is in fact himself in his intimacy. Pray not to this end, advised Evagrius of Ponticus in his chapters on prayer. Pray not to this end that your own desires be fulfilled. Once you have learned to accept this point, pray instead that thy will be done in me. In every matter, ask him in this way for what's good and for what confers profit on your soul. For you yourself do not seek this so completely as he does. Evagrius learned this lesson from painful personal experience. The historian Palladius from the year 400 tells us that in his younger years, Evagrius fell in love with the wife of an imperial official in Constantinople. Palladius writes, The woman loved him in return and wished to break off, whereas Evagrius wished to break off with the woman, who by now was eager and frantic. But he could not do so, so caught up was he in the bonds of concupiscence. After a disturbing dream, the next day Evagrius boarded a ship for Jerusalem. There he met the famous Melania, one of the wealthiest women of her time, who was also deeply committed to the monastic movement. After a severe sickness that lasted six months, Evagrius confessed his story to Melania. She advised him to flee to the desert, and so Evagrius of Pontus did just that. And for the last 16 years of his life, one of the greatest and most refined Christian intellectuals of the day submitted himself to the unlettered, and rustic Coptic peasants of the harsh Egyptian desert. Today he's recognized as one of the most distinguished practitioners and guides of the early desert fathers. 
So what did Evagrius learn in the desert? Among other things, he learned to set aside his own desires and to love the love of God. If and when we do that, he says, in words that echo Jesus' words from the gospel for this week, Evagrius writes, The Lord wishes to confer even greater favors than those you ask for. For books this week, I review Stephen Prothero. The title, God is Not One, The Eight Rival Religions That Run the World and Why Their Differences Matter. New York, Harper, 2010, 388 pages. In his book, World Christian Encyclopedia, from the year 2001, David Barrett identifies 10,000 distinct religions, 150 of which have a million or more followers. <clears throat> Many people today believe that these 10,000 distinct religions pretty much all teach the same thing. Although it's not fashionable to say so, give Stephen Prothero lots of credit for calling this bluff. To argue that all religions teach the same thing is patently false. That's precisely what they don't do. Prothero writes, this is a lovely sentiment, but it's dangerous, disrespectful, and untrue. Prothero wants to exchange this miracle of the imagination for a hard-headed realism. What the world religions share, he writes, is not so much a finish line as a starting point. They all agree that something is wrong with our world. Just what is wrong with the world and what will make it right are subjects of wide diversity in the world religions and even vast differences within a single religion. After a brief introduction, Prothero devotes one chapter each to what he calls the great religions of the world. He even presents the chapters in order of what he considers their greatness. Islam, Christianity, Confucianism, Hinduism, Buddhism, Yoruba religion, Judaism, Taoism, and then a short but helpful coda on atheism. By the end of the book, it's clear how much the eight religions diverge in what they teach and prescribe. Prothero admits that much is missing here by limiting himself to eight religions. He especially regrets that he's done nothing on Sikhism and its 25 million adherents. I found it curious that he felt compelled to rank and then present the religions in order of their greatness. His style is at times overly casual, as when he describes Anne Boleyn as, quote, a hot young thing. My biggest, biggest disappointment, though, is that his book does not explore the point raised in his introduction about how deeply religions diverge. Instead, it's a solid and reliable overview of eight major religions, much like you can get in many other books. If it's not true that all religions are beautiful and true, how do we identify those that are ugly and false? Do those that practice child sacrifice or mass suicide deserve equal respect? 
I appreciated Prothero's insistence that religions do not teach the same thing, but I kept sensing that in his view this didn't ultimately matter. Maybe all the religions are false, but it's hard to see how they can all be true. I sensed in Prothero a pluralism that demands a radically egalitarian perspective that grants parity and equal validity to all religions. Even though this seems to be what he denies in his introduction and conclusion. And so I wonder, do differences matter or not? Perhaps his question was not his purpose, but I would love to see him devote his considerable talent toward that obvious question in a future book. <clears throat> the title of the book, God is Not One the eight rival religions that run the world. The author, Stephen Prothero. For film this week, I review The Most Dangerous Man in America, Daniel Ellsberg in the Pentagon Papers, 2010. Having published a memoir about his role in the Vietnam War called Secrets, a memoir of Vietnam and the Pentagon Papers, 2002, this bio-documentary narrated mostly by Daniel Ellsberg himself puts a deeply human face on the man many people either love or hate. Both in the book and in the movie under review, Ellsberg documents how five successive presidential administrations systematically lied to the American people and to Congress about the Vietnam War. Truman, Eisenhower, Kennedy, Johnson, and Nixon. His story is especially compelling because he served patriotically in Vietnam only to have that experience convince him how terribly wrong his own government was about the war. As a Marine Company commander in Vietnam, Ellsberg was an enthusiastic supporter of the war. But two, year, two years of wading through swampy jungles and extended study of classified documents convinced him that government rhetoric and empirical realities were two very different things. And so Ellsberg came home and became an outspoken critic of the war, and in an aggressive effort to stop the war, he leaked the so-called Pentagon Papers to Congress and then to eventually 17 media outlets. 7,000 pages in 47 volumes of top-secret documents. Ellsberg fully expected to spend the rest of his life in jail, he faced counts that carried penalties of 115 years. That was until Nixon tainted the case with what became the Watergate fiasco. And so it was Henry Kissinger who branded Daniel Ellsberg the most dangerous man in America. For poetry this week, we begin an 11-week series by the poet John Berryman. John Berryman lived from 1914 to 1972, and one of his longer poems is called Eleven Addresses to the Lord. And so for the next 11 weeks, we'll post one, one address to the Lord each week 
taken from John Berryman, Collected Poems, 1937 to 1971. Eleven Addresses to the Lord, number one. Master of beauty, craftsman of the snowflake, inimitable contriver, endower of earth so gorgeous and different from the boring moon, Thank you for such as it is my gift. I have made up a morning prayer to you, containing with precision everything that most matters. According to thy will, the thing begins. It took me off and on two days. It does not aim at eloquence. You have come to my rescue again and again in my impassable, sometimes despairing years. You have allowed my brilliant friends to destroy themselves, and I am still here, severely damaged, but functioning. Unknowable as I am unknown to my guinea pigs, how can I love you? I only as far as gratitude and awe confidently and absolutely go. I have no idea whether we live again. It doesn't seem likely from either the scientific or the philosophic point of view, but certainly all things are possible to you. And I believe as fixedly in the resurrection appearances to Peter and to Paul as I believe I sit in this blue chair. Only that may have been a special case to establish their initiatory faith. Whatever your end may be, accept my amazement. May I stand until death forever at attention for any your least instruction or enlightenment. I even feel sure you will assist me again, master of insight and beauty. John Berryman, 11 Addresses to the Lord, number one. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, May the 30th, 2010. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.